You'd be forgiven for going loco down in Acapulco. Many have done. But these nostalgic names from football folklore have been going loco at the Camp Nou, the Westfalenstadion, and Bramall Lane, to name but a few, for decades. Football fans have long loved a character, a cult hero whose crazy antics on and off the pitch leave a legacy far outweighing their technical prowess. And it's the bizarre tales of football's lovable rogues that we celebrate today. Hello, Ben. Hello, Arthur. Delighted to be here for the Totally Loco 11. Some characters from football years gone by. There really are. We're excited to talk about this one. I'm actually wearing my uh, my new football top. It's, yes. been, uh, it's been a weekend of celebration. It was my 30th birthday. My esteemed colleague, Ben Warden, has got me a Burza Spore top. <laughs> <laughs> suitably random happy birthday to you Arthur um, I very much enjoyed your birthday bash I found it almost a bit bizarre you'd obviously told your friends that about this podcast and I had several come up to me and go oh you're Ben from the podcast it was almost like it was almost like we had listeners Arthur it was incredible a dose um, of fame yeah and you have such wonderful friends I think one guy he was um he was a Bradford City fan suggested to me that he'd been there that fateful day when Bradford beat Chelsea 4-2. said that that performance from John Stead was the best individual performance he'd ever seen from anyone bar Messi. <laughs> that would have been Will Barker. He's a massive John it Stead. Well. I think he was, yeah. he was delighted when John Stead featured in the FA Cup 11 for that, that brilliant performance. Yeah, and there was another chap, fantastic guy, who said he had previously believed that Emmanuel Adebayor was actually an English fella called Adam Bayor. <laughs> that would have been my friend Paddy, played Who's in the Bag one time, and he put that on one of the name tags, <laughs> and I picked it out and was expected to try and tell everyone who on earth that was. <laughs> I love that. Fantastic. Yes, a week of celebration, and of course, finishing with the totally loco 11. Do get in touch as usual at 11 pods if you've got any names to suggest whose crazy antics on and off the field amused you. It's a 3 4 3 formation today, very attacking. We've certainly seen some eccentric goalkeepers in years gone by. Arthur, which one have you picked out for this 11? I'm taking us back to a time well before I was alive and you okay. were alive. Uh, and I've gone for Bert Troutman. Ooh, that, that rings, that, yeah, it does ring about. Something's telling me Man City. That's absolutely correct. He played a lot of times for Man City, 545 to be. Oh, wow. Wise. Uh, and he has an interesting story that doesn't run without controversy because he was the enemy during the war. He, mm. He's German um, and by all rights, he should have been dead before he was even discovered as a goalkeeper. Mm. On the Russian front, as the Nazi forces retreated, Troutman was blown up but survived. In France, he was buried in rubble for three days after being bombed again. He was captured by the Russians and the French, but escaped both times. And then in 1944, he was one of the few survivors of the Allied bombing of Cleve. 
uh, and was captured by two American soldiers. When he fled, he ran over a wall and landed at the feet of a British soldier who greeted him with the words, hello, Fritz, fancy a cup of tea? And by this time, this time he didn't run and ended up in a prisoner of war camp in Lancashire. And that's how he arrived over here. There's no two ways about it. Bert was a Nazi. He'd saw some terrible things and harboured huge guilt for his lack of courage in doing nothing to stop it. Um, Naturally, when he signed for Man City, there were protests, almost 20,000 people marching outside Main Road. Um, Opposition to his signing died down largely due to uh, the incredible words of Rabbi Alexander Altman, whose parents were killed in the Holocaust. In an open letter to the Manchester Evening Chronicle, he wrote that Troutman should not be punished for the terrible cruelties we suffered at the hands of the Germans. If this footballer is a decent fellow, I would say there's no harm in it. Each case must be judged on its own merits. And actually, Troutman went on to win an OBE for his work for Anglo-German relations. Mm. Why is he loco, then? I would say it's largely due to his bravery when entering football folklore with his performances in the 1956 FA Cup final. Okay. Uh, in that game, with 17 minutes of the match remaining, he suffered a serious injury whilst diving at the feet of Birmingham City's Peter Murphy. Um, and despite his injury, he continued to play. He made several crucial saves and preserved his team's 3-1 lead. His neck at the end of the game was noticeably crooked as he collected his winner's medal. And incredibly, three days later, an X-ray revealed that his neck was broken. What? And he played 17 minutes and made amazing saves with a broken neck. Oh, (laughs) goodness me. That is insane. Absolutely unreal. And that year, he went on to be named FWA Footballer of the Year um, and had this remarkable career for Man City. Um, He was undoubtedly a world-class goalkeeper. Man United manager Matt Busby said, don't stop to think when you're going to hit it with Troutman. Hit it first and think afterwards. If you look up and work it out, he will read your thoughts and stop it. And equally, this was echoed by Man City forward Neil Young, who recalled that the only way to beat him with a shot in training was to mishit it. Goodness <laughs> so, me. By all accounts, this remarkable goalkeeper who discovered his talent literally playing in a prisoner of war camp over here in Lancashire and then being picked up by Man City. That's a really great tale. And I'm kind of looking at his profile now and amazed to find, although it's not that surprising given the background of this, this chap, he played his entire career in England despite being German. So it was St. Helens Town from 1948 to 1949. Then obviously Man City, the primary club of his career. And finally Wellington Town in 1964, which is now Telford United. So an incredible chunk of, of his life here dedicated to, to English football. And in, in international management as well, he's got some very interesting clubs on his CV. Um, he, he did work with the German Football Association to sort of build the profile of football in countries around the world. And he's got, Pat, I think you've got it in front of you there. Has he got pa- Pakistan on there? Pakistan, and- Burma. Incredible. I love that. That's a really great nomination, Arthur. I'm, I'm actually really chuffed you brought someone before our lifetime into this totally loco 11. Now we have three at the back 
So um, an opportunity really for some athleticism on the left side of the centre-backs. Uh, I've gone for Javier Margas. I, mm, do, I know, do I know Javier? You'd be forgiven for not knowing Javier. Uh, he's a six foot one Chilean centre half. He played the majority of his career in South America, um, but he was of reasonable profile. He made 63 national team appearances. He played all four games in the 1998 World Cup. And that included defending against the original Ronaldo, of course, in his prime. But really, when he was on the pitch, he stood out like a sore thumb. Margas was famous for dyeing his hair in different colours, most notably with the Chilean flag colours during his international career. It was a weird combination, though, because he had this remarkably nondescript buzz cut hairstyle with a sort of receding hairline. So it felt like a really odd combination of kind of the safe and the absolutely mental and out there. Um, and I feel like that's the sort of first hallmark of a loco defender, really, having that bizarre appearance that you always notice on your TV set. He was well respected by his peers, known for his physical and rugged defensive style. Uh, and so there was a lot of excitement when he signed for West Ham United in 1998 after the World Cup. Despite endearing himself to the fans with his signature dyed hair, of course, this time in the claret and blue. Oh. He struggled to settle. Uh, he cobbled together just 24 appearances uh, over just under three years at Upton Park. And it became apparent that Margas had struggled greatly with homesickness during this time, so much so that his wife and kids had actually moved back to Chile um, until this separation grew too much. And he actually went AWOL. The story is told beautifully by Harry Redknapp in a number of interviews. Um, Harry, his manager at the time, caught wind of the fact that Margas was staying at a hotel near the club's training grounds. So he went to the reception and asked them to go up and knock on his door. They did so and there was no answer. So they went down and got a key, entered the room only to find that the window was wide open and Margas had disappeared with his suitcase. He had jumped out the window, run to the roadside got a taxi to the airport and flown home and he would never return to the UK again. So West Ham's centre-back literally just disappeared one day and he would never be seen at Upton Park again. That's really weird. I, I, you know, I feel like he, this, this player, Javier Margas, kind of draws, draws together various aspects of players who've featured in 11s in times gone by. I think the hair dyeing, Paul Sharner, Big fan yes, of that yeah. at one point. Wasn't it, was it Mark Boogers who went, who disappeared as well from West Ham? I was trying to think. I Didn't one of remember that. There was, there was one of the, was he, he there was a rumour that he was, he was in a caravan park in the Netherlands or, or something yeah. like that. Okay. I can't remember whether it was, it was, I can't remember whether it was Marco, but um, yeah, a bizarre appearance over here. And I think it, I think the dying hair is certainly a way to um, fully endear yourself to a fan base immediately. I've seen pictures of Javier nowadays and he doesn't appear to be continuing to dye his hair. Um, although I'm not really sure what colour you would dye it. I suppose you could dye it grey if you were working in business or something like that. Maybe that's what his thinking is. Um, but his hobbies have taken over as his sort of insane element of his life. 
he recently bought a bulletproof car which he drives around town which he acquired from former dictator Augusto Pinochet which feels like a slightly unnecessary purchase mm. is he well kind of freeing the car from the uh, the former bad man I think I he's suppose, liberating the car maybe it's yeah but I don't really know why Javier would need a bulletproof car unless Harry Redknapp's still on the lookout for him uh, to, to somehow gain revenge but I'm sure that's not Harry's style um, but Javier Margas certainly stood out to me as a totally loco defender wonderful pick uh, and alongside him as one of the three centre-backs I've gone for Kevin Muscat yes I read about him in my research too tell us about him yeah he he was a bit of a hard man uh, there's no two ways about it after beginning his career in Australia despite the fact that he was born over here in the UK. He arrived in England in 96 to help Crystal Palace achieve promotion to the Premier League. He was a solid, if unspectacular, defender. Uh, and he was very, very much known for this fiery temper and ruthlessness on the pitch uh, in both England and Australia. He signed for Wolves for 200 grand, where he would go on to make 180 appearances before spells with Rangers and Millwall. He captained the latter to the FA Cup final in 2004, but sadly missed the final through injury. He then returned to Australia for six years with Melbourne Victory. Uh, and I actually, and this was very much in, in, you know, in a former life as a researcher for the 11 pod. Um, <laughs> I told you, I think, before about my, uh, my attendance to the Melbourne Victory Melbourne Heart game in 2011. Yeah. Uh, and I saw him play in that 2-2 draw. Um, the match was, in my mind, a perfect demonstration of this fiery temper. He was sent off and subsequently suspended for eight matches following his challenge on Melbourne Heart youngster Adrian Zara. Uh, he, he, sent, he basically just made no attempt to play the ball. It's been dubbed as one of the worst tackles in the history of the game. Uh, and it just shows what an absolute hothead he was and, frankly, a bit of a psycho. It first really came to the fore, this violence, in 1996, when he was sent off in his first season here in the UK after body-checking Norwich player Darren Eady, uh, which then sparked a 21-man melee where punches were thrown and two other players were sent off during the incident. Oh, man. Um, he was also a bit of a shithouse. Like, he was branded <laughs> a lowlife and a nobody by ex-England striker Ian Wright, uh, in September 1999, Wright claimed he was about to shoot when he heard Dougie Freeman, who was Forrest's other striker, shout, leave it. Wright stepped over the ball to allow Friedman to hit it. But instead, Musket, who had, according to Wright, merely impersonated Freeman, cleared the ball. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's such a like school playground move. <laughs> it's like so bizarre. Repercussions for his actions on the field didn't stop just at bans. He was forced to pay over 250 grand and a settlement to Charlton Athletic player Matty Holmes uh, after a tackle left Holmes requiring four separate operations on his leg. I mean, he's had run-ins with Craig Bellamy, Christophe Dugary. I mean, there are so many words you could use to describe him, but I think crazy and unhinged are certainly a few of them. And I, I just think he's that wrecking ball. I don't think we should really be glorifying this violence, but equally he does slot quite comfortably into a totally local 11. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I feel for him in some ways because he probably had more about him than just the yellow and red cards and the ill discipline. But I think when you retire and you're still known for that reputation, you have to say that there was probably an element of that in his career that was, I wouldn't say deliberate, but probably done for effect. Yeah, absolutely. So fantastic to get Kevin in alongside Javier. And the third centre-back is an Andre. Kevin, Javier and Andre are like, that's such a boy band. It back. really is. It really is. They would stand up on the key change. It's Andre yeah. BK. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Another Reading player. I had to. I just had to. Um, Andre was a behemoth of a player whose eccentricity was both excruciating and addictive in equal measure. Um, He was actually surprisingly effective. His strength and fleet of foot would often get him out of the most stupid self-made disasters. Um, And he had this bumbling dribble, which took him further up the pitch than it probably should have done but provided the odd surge of excitement through gritted teeth in the crowd. Um, On the rare occasions he did score, he would also do three somersaults, which looked pretty terrifying because he was over six foot and quite a bulky man. So imagine three somersaults from someone like that. It's not exactly Loire Loire. I think although he didn't play very much for them, he was most aptly described by the Middlesbrough Gazette, as an absolute monster, a physically imposing Hulk with a massive turning circle who did a solid, if sometimes erratic, job at Borough, but was always worth at least one heart-stopping moment of madness per game. I probably couldn't sum it up any better. (laughs) That's brilliant. B.K. Amugu, who used both barrels of his surnames on and off throughout his career, was somewhat of a journeyman. He played for 18 clubs over 18 years, um, but he was most settled at Reading and Burnley, both of whom he played in the Premier League for. Um, And bizarrely, it was a match between those two teams which exposed his first loco moment that sprang to mind. This was in the playoff semi-finals in 2009 in the Championship, where he was sent off for Reading for stamping on Robbie Blake and... He had earlier conceded the winning penalty, which was taken by Graham Alexander. So he certainly wasn't having a great game. He then aggravated the situation. He was sent off and ripped off his shirt, started stamping around the pitch and shouting insults at no one in particular. It was one of the most bizarre overreactions to a blatant red card I've ever been party to. And it resulted in an extension of his ban to five games and a charge of improper conduct. Um, And it seemed like more annoyance with himself than with the officials. It was this kind of weird churlish throwing the toys out the brand kind of response that kind of summed him up in a way. But the most bizarre outburst of BK's career was certainly on international duty with Cameroon. I don't know whether you remember this incident, Arthur. I don't think I do, no. So this was in the 2008 African Cup of Nations. He was sent off in the semi-final win over Ghana after a bizarre incident where he pushed a Ghanaian stretcher bearer in the dying seconds of the match. 
BK was banned from the final and Cameroon were five, fined £5,000 by the CAF. Um, and it, it seemed almost entirely unprovoked. BK claims that he thought he saw the Ghanaian stretcher bearer push one of his teammates out the way to get to the injured player. And his reaction was to run over and just shove him to the ground. It was unbelievably uncalled for and just a complete rush of blood to the head. Um, typical of a loco defender, if you like. Was anyone on the stretcher at the time or was it just an assault on the stretcher bearer? It was bearer? just an assault on the stretcher bearer who was trying to help out the injured player. Very, very peculiar. Um, but perhaps just to finish this piece on Andre BK, a peculiar piece of journalism that's kind of made its way onto his Wikipedia page. It reads, in April 2007, it was reported that BK had a Portuguese wife and that he was a fan of British food and comedy, particularly Mr. Bean. <laughs> what a weird it was thing. reported. Like, yeah. what breaking news, BK. Like <laughs> Bean. <laughs> I don't really know why that needed to be said, but, but there we go. Andre, I think, deserves a place in the Totally Loco 11. Gerard is striding and BK has caught him. Gerard is not happy. And they're going head to head. Interesting little shouting conversation. Now, taking a break from our 11 today, looking at Totally Loco, I thought it would be quite interesting to consider some of the weird and wonderful clauses in contracts that I've seen. <laughs> and perhaps ease you with a few made up ones okay you've got to decide which ones of these are true <laughs> i love that so your first one is spencer Pryor. okay he signed for cardiff city when he signed from man city it was conditional upon his eating of sheep's testicles oh my goodness that must be a lie. That must be wrong. No, it's true, mate. What? It's true. It's a delicacy in former owner Haman's native Lebanon. And so he, he wanted him to, um, to, to eat some sheep testicles. Yeah, it was something that he quite enjoyed doing as part of various contracts, um, just, but just putting something random in there, like a challenge of sorts. And actually, Spencer Pryor did enjoy the sheep's testicles, which later turned out to be slow-cooked chicken. It was a joke. Oh, man, <laughs> that is something else. I can't believe yeah. that. Uh, your second one is Maurice Brindles, uh, who signed for Perth Glory. Okay. Uh, and in 2016-17, the striker played for free in exchange for shirt sponsorship for the stationery company he co-owned. <laughs> right, okay. Um, that's pretty niche. Uh, I'm going to say it's true, though. No, I made it up then. Oh, <laughs> that was genius, though. You should Thanks make up much. clauses for Thank a living. I just add them in. Add them in to all oh, the contracts. Oh, wow. Yeah. Add them in. Uh, your next one is Giuseppe Rayner, who signed mm -hmm. for Armenia Bielefeld. Uh, and in that contract he signed, he stipulated that they would have to get him a new house every year. That seems like overkill. No, no, I don't think that happened. I'm afraid it did, Ben. What? <laughs> really? 
What yeah. a weird um, thing to request. It is a bit weird. It was a three-year contract, but actually Armenia had the last laugh uh, because he didn't mention any details about the dwelling that he wanted. <laughs> and as such, it was tradition that Armenia Bielefeld would deliver Lego houses to him each year. <laughs> 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 that's hilarious and there wasn't anything he could do about it so um yeah poor giuseppe thought he was being smart but armenia uh managed to managed to get away with a great little plan there that's hilarious. Uh, your next one is rolf your next one is rolf crystal Mien. oh yeah he's signed for eintracht frankfurt and as part of the deal uh a condition in the in the contract was that his wife was to be given cooking lessons <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I don't know what to think anymore. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, that was definitely in the contract. You've got one right, Ben. Well yes. done. Winner. <laughs> he was a Congolese international, and he said it would aid his uh, his performances on the pitch if his if his wife could cook very good food. I mean, he should have had the cooking lessons himself, frankly. I just was, uh... can't get my head around this, though. Like, that's probably true. But why wouldn't you just organise that yourself? Why would you put that in your, your work contract? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> just wanted to dot the, uh, dot the T's, cross the I's, etc. So, um, oh, yeah, bizarre. And your last one is Gilles Labadier-Sauz, who signed for Grenoble. Uh, and instead of a regular goal bonus, the midfielder was given a wheel of his favourite cheese, St. Marcella, <laughs> for every goal that he scored. Uh, yeah, go on, that happened. No, it didn't. Oh. It's come, come from the, the weird and wonderful mind of A. Fane. That's fantastic. I really love that. What, um, what clause would you put in your contract if you were a footballer? I feel like I quite like the house one, but yeah. I would be a little bit more, um, a little bit more sort of, uh, well, specific on the type of lodging I required. Uh, maybe, maybe something to do with travel. I maybe every goal I scored, I get a first class flight to be yeah. somewhere around the world. Mm. But I guess you get that from a goal bonus anyway, don't you? If you if you, yeah. if you have it monetary, so um, yeah, they're weird these clauses. Um, another one that I saw actually in my. Uh, in my research was Neil Ruddock uh, when he signed for Crystal Palace. Uh, there was a 10% penalty on his contract if he was if he weighed over 99.8 kilos. Uh, and, and of that clause, Simon Jordan said that Harry Redknapp had recommended he add it because Neil was fond of a few, uh, a few pies here and there. And Simon said, by the way, that size is still friggin' huge. So uh, <laughs> I don't know whether he got the penalty. But, um, yeah, they're, they're very weird, these contract clauses, especially the ones I made up. Um, and maybe maybe they should be uh, should be exercised more in contracts these days. They're just boring contracts. Money, 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 money. You know, why not? Why not add some wheels of cheese in there? So moving on to the left and the right side of the field, I've chosen kind of left wing back right wing back slash midfielder slash wing. they're going to be everywhere yeah yeah versatile that's what we like brilliant uh, and on the left i've gone for breck shea <laughs> oh breck shea yes please love that yeah he was he was one of the brightest young talents of us football uh, when he signed for 2.5 million at stoke city in 2013 
Uh, he signed a four and a half year contract, but did little to impress. He went out on loans to Birmingham and Barnsley uh, and actually only made three appearances uh, for Stoke. And I think the bizarreness when it comes down to him starts off with just a raft of totally crazy photos he's been involved in. Um, <laughs> admittedly, probably not the ideal content for a podcast. We'll definitely, <laughs> I mean, we will definitely post them at 11 pod, the word, not the number. Um, the one he posted to announce he'll soon become a dad was quite interesting. Um, he's wearing nothing but a boating hat, some dodgy shoes and a fairly sheepish look behind his hand that covers his face. Um, and he stands what? behind, he stands beside his partner, um, whose name, interestingly, is Carling. <laughs> Great name. Uh, and she's covered in purple, pink and white body paint uh, and looks fairly uncomfortable about the whole thing. <laughs> There was, there was one user who commented on his the Instagram post saying, not playing soccer is making this guy weird. And I fully agree. It's yeah. just utterly bizarre. Breck is um Breck Breck was very exciting, particularly because he, he had this wacky hairstyle as well, didn't he, when he signed for Stoke? I remember thinking he kind of looked the part. Yeah, he looks kind of like a I think he looked a bit like a sort of Australian surfer. He's kind yeah. of quite I long, was thinking like like the milky bar kid having like a, you know an awakening in his early 20s yeah I think that's I think that's fair to say mm. he had at various points in his career a ponytail he had cornrows a quiff a mohican he even had a bandana at one stage yeah he, he certainly uh, liked to look the part and actually that half explains another photo where he poses shirtless once again. He's in jeans this time though, not naked. Uh, and he's got alongside him a model who's wearing lingerie and cowboy boots. Uh, she's got pretty pretty zoned out, glassy right. eyes. And equally at the same time, there's a baby donkey in the shot as well. And they're just posing oh. on hay bales. Um, I, I'm really not sure what's going on with this. Um, the, the baby donkey half asleep the brunette she's stroking its neck it's just it's just bizarre and I, I don't really I don't really get it with Breck Shea perhaps he focused a bit more on his off the field lifestyle than on the field he also played a part in another ridiculous prank this time on Kenwyn Jones um, the Trinidad and Tobago striker opened his locker to find a severed pig's head staring back at him. Yeah, which I random. remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did we discuss this on a previous podcast? I think so, yeah. I think we did. Was... I've certainly heard this story before. Do we know who the culprit was? Because I feel like Jones certainly thought it was Glenn Whelan. Yeah, uh, it seems like a very Glenn Whelan, kind of Andy Wilkinson-style yeah, prank, doesn't pretty it? pretty mm. Um, but, but Jones went out and smashed his windscreen with a brick. Um, but Shay played his part because he posted a picture on Instagram holding the pig's head in front of his face with the caption, locker room banter gone wild, hashtag <laughs> SAW. It, I mean, it sounds like a fairly unhealthy dressing room environment in there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> pranks are one thing, but I mean, a severed pig's head, where do you get that from? It's, ugh, it's just rank. Yeah, I I have found all sorts of articles just in this kind of brief period looking at Breck Shea. He he's really is a character. He he sells paintings um, off a off a kind of website of his. He he flogs skateboards. Um, he he's got Breck yourself 
t-shirts which he also sells and and i've also seen an article here that suggests he's looking to change his name to d's nuts to kind of rebrand himself i don't think that one's true but that seems very breck though it does feel breck uh, yeah I, I think he is totally loco actually now that you say it i really like the fact that he's playing left midfield yeah he really is he's actually still only 32 and currently playing with into miami i mean he, I, i'd say throughout his career he's proved himself as like a decent not very spectacular left back slash left midfielder certainly better going forward i'd say than defensive but that wild side of his game just i think merited inclusion in this 11 brilliant um a bit of a hard man alongside him center midfield gary medell gary medell my memory of him is he's kind of like a arturo vidal light do you know well, what i mean yeah he is chilean as well i just feel like they're both kind of bulldogs really aren't they <laughs> Well, they are, actually. And during his career, his niggly, sort of petulant, aggressive style earned him the nickname The Pitbull. So there we go. Um, You've spotted well. He was a fiery and feisty midfield hatchet man. Um, Five foot seven, he was. A bit of a small man's syndrome kind of vibe about him, to be honest. And I can say that, being small myself. But really, he was a top, top player. I mean, 145 national team appearances is not easy to come by. Um, He had fruitful spells at Inter Milan and also at Boca Juniors, as well as an incredibly underrated spell for me at Cardiff City in the Premier League. He was comfortably their best player. And I know they'll talk about, obviously, Peter Whittingham for good reason and some other players in terms of Cardiff's best. But Gary Medell has got to be in the conversation. I mean, that was a massive coup, them landing him. Did he just play for them for one season? Yeah, and they did get relegated. So it didn't really work in terms of a a kind of overall team structure, but certainly he was the star. He's best known, though, for his time at Seville. And um, I think his greatest flaw and undoubted loco tendencies were seen most clearly here. And it came in the form of ill-discipline. He was possibly the most petulant midfielder in the top divisions of football. In just two seasons at Sevilla, he received 33 yellow cards. That's more than one every three games and no fewer than seven red cards. They included headbutts, lunging challenges and altercations with Lionel Messi and Cesc Fabregas. The Guardian's Spanish correspondent, Sid Lowe, described the fundamental player liability balance um, that appeared to be eternal baggage for this player. And I think that kind of sums it up, really. You've got an incredible talent on your hands, but also someone who seemingly cannot control this kind of rage inside of him when there's a loose ball or a 50-50 challenge. He said right up until the red card, he's mighty handy but it's a case of when and not if. And this anger had truly been around for a long time. He was actually sent off after just 16 minutes of the under-20s World Cup semi-final clash against Canada in 2007. And after the match became embroiled in a violent confrontation with the police and Chile's players. So this kind of followed him around everywhere. And, And doing the reading, it is kind of sad. He had an incredibly tough upbringing, He was subjected to to violence and arrested a couple of times in his youth. 
And so I, I think to some extent, this fire is a product of his upbringing. Um, but I wanted to get him in this side because he was, of course, loco in the way that he behaved and some of his more physical side of his game. But also, what a player. We've got to remember Gary Medell in that light. Um, uh, certainly for Cardiff, what an incredible player to watch. Absolutely. I, I had no idea that he was so incredibly highly capped internationally. Mm. That's phenomenal. 145 caps, 14 years an international. Only recently retired, I believe. Is that right? Uh, he's still playing. He actually plays for Bologna, I believe, in Serie A. Um, oh, but- he's in his in his 30s now, but still playing at a decent level. I don't know for how much longer. Um, maybe he's going to exceed the 150, maybe. Who, who knows? knows? Who knows? Alongside him in central midfield, um, if you're a listener of the 11, um, which you clearly are, if you've got this far, um, we always have one position that's up for grabs. So we've got a fantastic nomination from a guest, uh, and Arthur and I are going to pitch in a couple as well. You can vote for that second central midfielder on Twitter. Right mid. Is Emmanuel Abue. Oh, Emmanuel Abue. I don't know how we've gone. What is it, like 33 episodes or something without including Emmanuel Abue? Yeah, it's kind of outrageous, really. As I say, performing that right wing back slash right midfield role. He joined Arsenal in 2004 after impressing scouts when he was at Beveren in Belgium. Mm. And he went on to make 214 appearances for Arsenal, including playing in the 2006 Champions League final before leaving for Galatasaray in 2011. I I feel like he's a very Turkish Super League player, Emmanuel Abue, that sort of decorated Premier League player who goes and plays over there when he's slightly past his best. But he actually won five domestic honours in Turkey. Internationally as well, he made 79 appearances for the for the Ivory Coast, appearing in seven major tournaments with them. Um, by all accounts, an excellent player. But I think it's his hilarious and slightly left field side that gets him into this team, despite the fact that he's playing on the right. <laughs> the stories are numerous. Firstly, his hilarious warm-up routines, his crazy <laughs> stretching. Um, frankly... I mean, there's there's a brilliant video where he runs onto the pitch for a warm-up and boots the ball into the stands as hard as he can. He's just a bizarre and thoroughly entertaining bloke. According to Emmanuel Adebayor, or Adam Bayor, as he's known now, <laughs> um, Abue was lurking with intent at a party for the Arsenal team at Gilberto Silva's house. Adebayor recalls, It wasn't even a fancy dress party, but there was a bouet dressed as a tiger with a tail and everything waiting (laughs) behind the door. When I arrived, he made a big noise like a tiger roaring. For a moment, I was in big panic. But then I saw him and thought, oh, it's only a bouet. (laughs) I just love this guy. So good. Uh, Then there was the moment where Ivory Coast against North Korea in the 2010 World Cup, he became a bit of a viral sensation for pretending to understand the tactical message from North Korean coach Kim Jong-un to his captain on the sidelines, uh, despite not knowing a single word of the language. It's just brilliant. His knowing nod in the background uh, as the North Korean captain's receiving the the instructions is just so brilliant. Uh, And then finally, just a, a great story of an occasion where the Arsenal squad visited Buckingham Palace in 2007. Abue recalls, we went there and Thierry Henry said to me, 
please, Emmanuel, this is Buckingham Palace. It's the Queen's house. Don't do anything. No problem, I said. Don't worry. So the Queen came in and went along shaking each player's hand. After she finished, I saw all her corgis. So I said, Mom, Mom. She turned back and asked, how are you? I said, Mom, I'm okay, thank you. But please, I don't want to be a footballer anymore. I want to look after your dogs. I want to take them for walks, wash them, feed them. I want to be a dog carer. The Queen, honestly, she was laughing. Prince Philip was laughing too. All the team were laughing. I, I honestly don't know what to say. It, he is such a character. I, I don't know whether you came across this, um, the Twitter conversation that he had. Oh, such a good Twitter conversation. Oh, my goodness. Tell, ben. Yes. So this is obviously um, back in the day when Emmanuel Laboué had just announced that he was on Twitter. He decided to post publicly, my wife and kids are not around. What do you people think I should do tonight? He obviously got several responses and his following tweets were, everyone is suggesting I have a wank. What is the meaning of a wank? You know, my first language is French. Is a wank a biscuit or ice cream? (laughs) (laughs) So good. What a character. I I also um, enjoyed reading that he had a really did you play there moment where um, and the answer was no. He signed for Sunderland in 2016 and never got a game. Very nice. Was that a relegation season or a relegation survival season? I wonder. It was the year they went down. Oh no. Donovan for Shea walking into the box. Shea shot. He scores in the US leads. I spent some time researching totally loco strikers and there were so many to choose from and two rose to the top, both of whom were Italian and both of whom played for Middlesbrough. So I really couldn't pick between them. In the end, I've gone for Massimo Macaroni. Yes, so good. Was the other one Ravinelli? It was, 100%. They have a thing about these crazy Italian strikers. Um, I don't know what Borough fans think of it. I imagine they loved having them around. Also, macaroni is a type of pasta, and Ravinelli sounds like it should be a type of pasta. It sounds like ravioli, doesn't it? It does a bit, yeah. Yeah, I wonder whether the signing of macaroni was was greeted with, like, him holding a a bowl of uncooked macaroni pasta or something. (laughs) There was a phase in English football in the 90s where like Italians would sign and they'd be required to hold like there's, there's a brilliant photo in 1997 when Di Canio signed for Sheffield Wednesday and he's holding like a, a raw pizza with his it's, tongue out going like yum and it's, it's like so bizarre. so bizarre i know can you imagine if we'd signed for like an italian club and they were like uh all right lads uh can you just hold this steak pie It'd be <laughs> very <laughs> odd um but there we go anyway he uh macaroni was a character he insisted on being called big mac despite the fact he was only five foot eleven um but he was actually pretty prolific uh, he scored nearly 250 career goals, a career that spanned 22 years, mostly in Italy, but with brief spells in England and Australia. He was signed by Middlesbrough in 2002 for 8.15 million, which is quite a lot, actually. 
uh, and he made his debut against Southampton in 2002. Uh, and his second appearance, his home debut, he scored twice in a 2-2 draw against Fulham. But he'll be most fondly remembered by Borough fans for his UEFA Cup heroics in 2006. He scored against Basel in the second leg of the quarterfinals, um, a tie in which Borough overturned a three-goal deficit to win 4-3 on aggregate. Uh, in the semi-final of the same competition, he came on as a substitute and scored twice in the aggregate 4-3 win over Stoya Bucharest, scoring one of Middlesbrough's most iconic goals of all time, once again in the 90th minute and taking Borough to the final. So why Loco? Well, two incidents kind of stick out to me. One, his outspoken interviews and particularly one conducted after ingloriously leaving Middlesbrough, a team that had given him a chance to be in Europe's top league and paid him an exorbitant amount of money over the several years he was at the club. On his manager, Steve McLaren, he said, the ever-smiling Steve Magnificent McLaren is without doubt the most two-faced and false person I have ever had the misfortune to meet in football he should first spend his time actually trying to understand his own player's mentality instead of wasting so much time trying to understand the English press. Sadly, Fabrizio Ravinelli was so right about this club. The training facilities are good, but the training methodology, the mentality and the way of working are at least 25 years out of date. The club are stuck in the past in a purely blinkered English mentality employing friends of friends who have absolutely no business being where they are. What an outrageous thing to say in this kind of wow. highly sanitised media era. Yeah, that's outrageous. Yeah. Well, Steve. I kind of like the fact that he felt confident enough to be that outspoken. Yeah. But I still think that's madness. I mean, bad-mouthing an employer that pretty much gave you your career. And also, Steve McLaren did an excellent job at Middlesbrough. There's yeah. no doubting that. So perhaps he felt forced out of the club or, or something. I don't know why he would have been because he played incredibly well for Middlesbrough. A big surprise. Um, yeah. Bit of an Empoli legend, I would he, say. He was an Empoli legend, yeah. And I think one of the reasons he was an Empoli legend was partly because of his celebrations, which were iconic, and apparently from Game of Cards, bizarrely. He used to play with his friends. Um, but one such celebration was particularly iconic and I think earned his place in the Loco 11 above Ravinelli. And that's when he took a swig of a fan's beer in celebrating <laughs> a goal while playing for Empoli. He just sort of jumped into the crowd, into the front row, snatched their glass off them and started drinking from it. <laughs> so um, a strong move. Well played him. Yeah. A little bit crazy. Perhaps didn't show his best side when leaving Borough. Um, but I fondly remember him. Yeah, and I think maybe above all reasons, Ben, I know you love a long loan. The fact that it was a, a three-year, 105-game loan spell at Empoli in 2012-14, to 14, uh, yes. amongst his other permanent spells there, I just think that cements him as an 11 candidate. Brilliant. Love that. Who's alongside him, Arthur? Well, perhaps it's a trait of the Italians to be a bit loco, even though it's a Spanish word. But I've gone for another Italian. I've gone for Antonio Cassano. Oh, yes, of course. In 1999, Barry hosted Inter Milan, or Bari, 
maybe other, other yeah players. Barry I think Barry's sort of Barry extenders, West London host. yeah <laughs> Barry so um injuries gave opportunities in that game to two unproven teenagers one of which was Antonio Cassano and in the 87th minute with the score tied at one all a long ball from Simone Perotta found Cassano in space on the left-hand channel he took a mesmeric first touch and instantly brought the ball under his spell before basically just leaving Laurent Blanc and Christian Panucci, two of the greatest defenders of all time in his wake, uh, as he cut inside them and calmly finished past the goalkeeper to claim a 2-1 victory. And it launched the career of a man who's often described as an unhinged genius. Mm. Um, he was signed after that initial brilliant spell with Bari by Fabio Capello for Roma in 2001 for 30 million euros. And that made him the world's most expensive teenager at the time. And he developed a formidable partnership with Francesco Totti. Despite the unbridled talent that he had, it was his volatility and temperament uh, that got him into trouble. He would clash with managers frequently. Him and Capello were frequently said to tell each other to fuck off, apparently. Mm, um, he also is said to have confronted Luciano Spalletti, who was Roma's new manager, uh, with, you're not coaching those useless players you had at Udinese. This isn't your house, it's my house. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> a bit of a, a bit of a confident fella. Um, and contract wrangles at Roma meant that he left for Real Madrid for just 5 million euros. Uh, and it was in the Spanish capital that he truly began to embrace the playboy lifestyle. Uh, he gained excessive weight and slept with numerous women. Food and sex were essentially his vices. Uh, in his autobiography, he claimed to have slept with around 600 to 700 women. Uh, and then it was easy to get away with his habits in Madrid, even before a match. Uh, he said, in Madrid, I had a friend who was a hotel waiter. His job was to bring me three or four pastries after I had sex. He would bring the pastries up the stairs. I would escort the woman to him and he would make the exchange. He would take the girl and I would take the pastries. Sex and then food. Uh, I Perfect just, night. I, I don't know what to say. I have, I have no, no logical reaction to that. <laughs> and I feel like that kind of caused his, um, his downfall at Madrid, who eventually began to fine him for every gram he was overweight. And that led to the nickname El Gordito, or the Little Fatty. Oh. <laughs> he would also later be re reunited with Capello at Madrid, where his continued indiscipline and emotional outbursts uh, led Capello to coin the term Casanata, which literally meant doing a Casano. I mean, the fact that you have a word named after how crazy you are, I think just makes him a perfect candidate for this team. Um, he returned eventually to Italy with Sampdoria and subsequently AC Milan, Parma and Inter. And he did rediscover his form a little bit. He got recalled to Italy's 2012 Euro squad, um, but they were still mixed in with moments of madness and petulance. Uh, including throwing his shirt at a ref and receiving a five-match ban. Wow. Um, and then there was the moment where he broke down in Gaza-like inconsolable tears after being suspended. Uh, that meant he could he missed out on the return to Roma. Um, but I think despite all this, this craziness, I genuinely feel there's no doubting that he was 
an absolute genius with a football and could genuinely have been one of the best players the world's ever seen. That's yeah. not even an exaggeration. Um, former Real Madrid player and general manager Jorge Valdano said, Pirlo is the substance of the Italian football team, while Cassano is the imagination. He is a player who at any time of the game has solutions that neither the coach nor the players can give. So he just was, uh, he was able to bring in that moment of magic that could unlock mm. a defence. And that was invaluable. And genuinely, if he wasn't such, an, such a loon, he really would have been amazing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in saying that I think often genius, genius and lunacy kind of go hand in hand. And so it's no surprise that a number of these players we talk about today were exceptionally good footballers. I mean, that is why Andre BK and Brett Shea are in this team. <laughs> unbridled genius i love that who's uh who's the third striker in this potent strike force another italian no it's not actually arthur and this is someone who my research of kind of emanated from a particular loco moment that i remember quite clearly from when i was younger the player is Zhao pinto yes absolutely brilliant pick i absolutely he, love this he was another sort of diminutive so short elite level footballer whose behavior on the pitch left a lot to be desired a member of what was known as Portugal's golden generation and a Benfica legend five foot seven he was a creative influence from high up the pitch with supreme vision but he also had a devastating finish and at his peak in the 95-96 season he scored 23 goals in 42 games for Benfica and you might remember him for having a Robbie Fowler-esque nose strip throughout his career. That was kind of part of his iconic look with his floppy hair as well. Although really talented, Pinto was also known for a series of red cards for aggression and bad tackles. His feud with Porto player and national teammate Paulinho Santos lasted for years. Both players frequently sent off after hitting each other during matches. Um, and other incidents which stirred controversy, including a, included aggression against a fireman during the halftime break of a game and elbowing a CF Estrella de Amadora player during a practice friendly match. So he, he really did seem to have no lid on his temper. But the lowest point and what I mentioned at the beginning of this piece came in 2002 at the World Cup. At this point, he was 30 years old. Uh, he was playing for Benfica's rivals at the time, Sporting, having controversially moved there. And it was a game against South Korea in the group stages. He was sent off for what was an absolutely horrendous challenge from behind and proceeded to square up to the Argentinian referee, Angel Sanchez, in annoyance. Uh, and this led to him being suspended completely from international football for six months, which I actually think is a legitimate disciplinary action. However, six months, that's a really long time. It's quite David Prutton, isn't it? Yeah, 100% agree with you. Um, he was often regarded, Pinto, as one of the greatest Portuguese players never to have played a senior professional game outside of his homeland. 
his wow. entire domestic career was played in the elite clubs in Portugal. So if you haven't heard of Pinto, that might be why, but it was that moment at the World Cup that stood out in my mind and kind of made me think, yeah, he'd be a good shout for the Loco 11. They had a great raft of strikers uh, during that period of time. I remember Euro 2000, about the time where I, uh, I was utterly obsessed with This Is Football, uh, which yes, is based yeah. on France 98. And I loved the strike force of João Pinto and Ricardo Sapinto. Yes. Uh, and then you, you've, got, you've got the youngster Nuno Gomez waiting in the wings. You've got Pauletta as well. Mm. Um, and obviously that was, that was boosted by you know, players like Rui Costa and Luis Figo. Their, their squad at that time was, was so exciting and full of, full of talent. And João Pinto, I'm shocked to find out he never played out, outside Portugal. I consider him more of a sporting Lisbon striker, even though he played much more frequently for Benfica. And to go and play for sporting as well, and Braga, three of the big four, really, in that country. I don't know whether that's frowned upon as it would be in this country. Yes, it certainly is. And I actually think you've just alienated the entire Benfica listenership that we had here at the Eleven. Um, we're so sorry. Please come back. Please come back. Uh, that's a crunching tackle by João Pinto, and he's in trouble. In fact, it's a straight red. We return to the centre of the park for our Up for Grabs nominations. So we've had one in and we're really delighted about it. Christopher Highland. He is the author of Tears at La Bombonera, which is a travelogue about his six years in South America. Um, he is Oslo born and I hear his nomination is going to have something to do with that. Can't wait to hear about this one. My shout for the Totally Loco 11 is a man you definitely won't have heard of, who played for a club you probably haven't heard of. Now based in Oslo, I wanted to come with something local, something loco, something Scandi-Noir. My nominee for the central midfield spot is Paul Engid, who played for Oslo's biggest club, Wallerringer. Aged 19, he turned out for Wallerringer in the 1986 UEFA Cup campaign. But within two years, he was climbing in through a museum window to steal an Edward Munch painting. Engid spent three years in prison and upon release tried restarting his football career. But he eventually admitted he was never going to be the best football player. But as a thief, he could be a candidate for the underworld's Ballon d'Or equivalent. In 1994, Engid stole Edward Munch's The Scream. 25 years later, the Ultras have made a sticker of Paul Engid in a Wallerringer kit climbing down a ladder with a scream tucked under his arm. For the three minutes he played in 1986 UEFA Cup, and for the ultra stickers adorning Norwegian football, Paul Engid is your central midfielder. Oh my gosh, that's an incredible story. I had absolutely oh, no wow. idea. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much, Christopher. Christopher's research was incredible for this, by the way. He sent through some more notes. Apparently the saga with the painting went on and on. Enger actually offered to return the painting, asking for one million US dollars in return. But that was refused, so he was imprisoned. He escaped for 12 days in 1999 before started painting himself in 2007, opening his own gallery and showing the paintings that he had painted. But that didn't stop him stealing paintings. He was accused of stealing 17 more, admitting to stealing five. What the hell? I, I All pointing in the direction of him, him moving into forgeries, I feel. Yeah. 
been quite a good career path for him. I find it bizarre that he would he would expect to be paid to return the painting he stole. I can't Just believe that. I don't know what to say, but that is a fantastic nomination. Thank you so much, Christopher. And do please check out Tears at La Bombonera on Amazon. He's, uh, of course, going to be in the vote on Twitter at 11pod, the word, not the number. Arthur, I think you've got another to stick in that vote. Yeah, I do. And I felt in the totally loco 11, it felt wrong not to talk about a single member of the crazy gang. Ah, oh, yes. So here we have a nomination for Vinnie Jones. Yes, of course there is. I actually saw him singing on a slightly bizarre terrestrial TV show about a year ago. He can't sing, but he could play football. Yeah, it seems very Vinny to appear on uh, on, a, on a show singing. Um, he's definitely best remembered for his time at Wimbledon as a pivotal member of the famous Crazy Gang. He won the 1988 FA Cup with Wimbledon, playing over 200 games for them during two spells between 86 and 98. Uh, and throughout his career, Jones gained a reputation for a highly aggressive a physically uncompromising style of play, uh, earning him a hard man image on and off the field. Uh, he was sent off 12 times in his career, uh, as well as holding the record for the quickest ever booking in a football match. He was mm. booked after just three seconds for a foul on the opposition player, Dane Whitehouse, in an FA Cup tie between Chelsea and Sheffield United. In his autobiography, he recalls, I must have been too high, too wild, too strong or too early because after three seconds, I could hardly have been too bloody late. <laughs> uh, then, of course, there's the time in October 1987 when he was famously photographed uh, covertly grabbing Paul Gascoigne by the bollocks during a league game. And it's that look on Gascoigne's face where he's like scrunching his face. And it, oh, it's just, it's, it's classic Vinny. Uh, and now he's known almost more for his acting career. He was a particular favourite of Guy Ritchie, having appeared in Lock, Stock and Snatch, uh, as well as one of my favourite football films, She's the Man, uh, which I think I've mentioned on this. Uh, you this have before. indeed. And just completing that poll off, uh, I'm going to stick another Nordic name up there, a former Bolton midfielder, Stig Tufting. 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 <laughs> yeah, his, um, his list of misdemeanours off, off and on the pitch, in fact, weird way of saying that, uh, just goes on and on. Um, even his Wikipedia picture is him receiving a booking which seemed very appropriate. Um, but most notably, two scuffles actually happened on team socials. One in 2002, this was with the Denmark team after the World Cup, where he headbutted the proprietor of Cafe Ketchup and got four months in jail out in South Korea. Wow. Uh, and he was also sacked from AGF Aarhus for punching four teammates at the Christmas lunch after they, as a prank, ripped his shirt. Wow. So, yeah, very, uh, very bizarre and a little bit hot-headed. I would caveat this by mentioning that Tofting had a truly traumatic upbringing um, and lost both his parents at a young age in a tragic, tragic incident. So um, it might go some way to explaining his actions, but there's no doubt that he was a loco midfielder on and off the pitch and someone who I enjoyed remembering as a player, someone who deserved to be in this poll, I feel. I'm pleased he's loco both on and off the pitch and off and on the pitch. Yeah, both way rounds. It works for Stig. 
And that's why he's in the park. Right, on the bench, a couple of names that we've left out that I felt had to be named. And these players are probably the names that you are clamouring for, one of which not included because he's made an 11 before. That's René Higuita, who I thought is, I mean, he is literally nicknamed El Loco. So uh, a perfect pick for this 11. There's, of course, Mario Balotelli with his various incidents with darts and with throwing money out of his window when he drove through Manchester. There's Eric Cantona with his seagulls and the trawler and all sorts. Some real unhinged, creative thinkers of the game, perhaps, but maybe a bit too obvious. They'll be riding the pines throughout this episode, I'd imagine. Uh, Let's run you through our final Totally Loco 11. In goal, Bert Troutman. At the back, it's Javier Margas, Kevin Muscat and Andre Bique. Across that midfield, it's Breck Shea, Gary Medell, the poll that's on Twitter, your choice, and on the right, Emmanuel Abue. And up front, Massimo Macaroni, Antonio Cassano and Xiao Pinto. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 